Well, good afternoon. It's good to have you here with us. Uh, I am pleased uh, to be with you and and uh, be in First John. I, I was thinking about uh, that psalm that we heard to open the service, Psalm 24. Who is this King of Glory? And open the gates that the King of Glory may come in. I remember being a kid sitting in church and wondering what in the world was that talking about? I had no idea what that picture meant about Jerusalem, the holy city, and the gates rolling up because the king was coming in to Jerusalem as promised by God. And um, as we just rehearsed, it is our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who is this king of glory, who's come in and who we are his, and he is our hope in life and death. And the book of 1 John is all about assurance. Uh, in fact, 1 John 5.13, as John concludes in that last chapter, he basically capstones all of these reasons for writing. And he says, I write these things to you so that you know that you have eternal life. And how is it that we know we have eternal life? Well, throughout the letter of 1 John we've seen so far, it's not rooted primarily in our subjective, subjective experience, is it? That's part of it, seeing that we have fruit. But if you're like me, we're the worst critics of our own fruit, aren't we? Is our fruit ever good enough? I don't, I don't feel like it is. I, I feel like the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit makes it even harder to be a fair judge of our fruit because we know that nothing good dwells in us apart from God. That any work that we do that's for Him is really done by the Spirit and, and we're our own worst critic. And so what John, he, he constantly points to this reality that our assurance is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That when we want to know for sure that we have salvation and have eternal life, we look to Jesus. We don't look to ourselves, because the minute we start navel-gazing, the minute we start just scraping our guts, what are we going to find? Just a mess. And yet when we look to Jesus, the righteous one, the perfect one, who came and never sinned and died in our place and died not only as a substitute for sin and for sin, He died for us, but then we hear in the Gospel that what He does is He gives us His righteousness so that when the Father looks at us, He no longer sees our sin. He sees the righteousness of His Savior so that we're called saints. That's good news. That's really good assurance. You see, and, and John had started the book in chapter 1 talking about fellowship. If you remember that, 1 John 1.7, he says, if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His Son cleanses us from all sin. And <clears throat> when we looked at chapter 1, we saw that John was more concerned with the experience of fellowship than simply the existence of fellowship. He wanted them to really know that they could experience fellowship with God, fellowship with His Son, and because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, fellowship with one another in such a way that it is the characteristic, the atmosphere of our lives. It's the, 
the shade that, that shades the, the, the paint, right? The tint. Have you ever seen that? I remember uh, my wife is always painting something, it seems like. And I go to Home Depot and I'm fascinated by how they tint the paint. Because it always starts the same with that base that's like a off-white eggshell. Is that sort of what it really is? I don't know. But then they put this tint in it, and then they shake it up, and I'm waiting for that thing to explode, and I've seen that it has in the past because there's all sorts of paint around the Home Depot thing. But it's, I've never seen it. It hasn't happened. Anyway, but that color, that tint, that shade, that atmosphere, this is what John's writing that our fellowship with one another would be so experienced, so real, that we would see it as the characteristic of our lives. And he's basing this not something in us, not, not something we have to drum up, that we have to sort of make this happen. He says this is a reality that's already ours because we're in Jesus. That the same fellowship that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Spirit and the Spirit has with the Father and, all, and the Father has with the Spirit, all, the triune God, this fellowship, now because of Jesus and our union with Him, we experience this. And then we saw in chapter 2 that John ties it to the new covenant. We saw this last week in the poem. This, this, it's sort of taken after Hebrew poetry that I'm, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you little children because you know the father. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning and I'm writing to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. And remember in this oral culture, the fact that John's using a poem is that he wants them to memorize it. The main point, like what is it in this, all of this writing, John's like, if you're going to remember one thing, it's going to be this poem that I just told you. And the content of that poem covers the extent of the Christian life from little children to old men in this metaphor. But what does he do? He attaches every statement of reality to the new covenant. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. And what did the new covenant say? There's coming a day when I will forgive your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. This is Jesus in the context, because chapter 1 says, that which was from the beginning that we touched, that we held, we saw with our eyes concerning the word of life. Who is the, the person who brings us this new covenant? The Lord Jesus. And he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And at first, it's, well, how is that attached to the new covenant? But then in the second repetition, he says, the word of God abides in you. Sure sounds a lot like in the new covenant when he says, I'll write my law on your hearts and on your minds, I'll write it. This reality of what we have is not Ten Commandments on stone now. We have the law of God written on our hearts. We have the new covenant. And this new covenant means we don't just know about God. We know Him from the least of us to the greatest of us. And he says, I write to you, little children, because you know the Father. You know Him. And this is really good news. Now, what John is going to do in this section today is he's going to use the word abide at the end of it to describe what it means to know the Father. Let's read uh, 1 John 2, 18-27 together he says children it's the last hour and as you've heard that antichrist is coming 
So now many antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And so he's bookended this idea of the Word of God dwells in you and you've overcome the evil one. And now he, then, he, then we skipped over those couple verses where he says, don't love the world and the things in the world because all that's in the world's passing away. Everything the world offers, it can never make good on. But what you already have, you'll never lose. And so now he's getting into this idea that this anointing from Christ the Holy One means genuine fellowship with the Father and other Christians is a reality. This fellowship is a reality. That's verses 18 to 23. He starts by saying in verse 18, it's the last hour. And, and of course, if we look at the last hour, biblically, it's been the last hour since the Son of God invaded the evil one's domain and dealt him a death blow. It's been the last hour since the cross and more importantly, since the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And do you know what he's doing right now? He's ruling and reigning with the greatest authority, and he's interceding for us. And the Father says that he's placing all of the Son's enemies under his feet, Psalm 110. That's repeated over and over in the New Testament. And the last enemy is death. And so right now, it's the last hour. This is... The ending of it, we don't know. It's, it's unknown. No one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return. It's the, quote, pause before the storm where God is going to judge. We heard it in 2 Thessalonians 2. Read today that there's going to come a time when Antichrist is going to rise up and he's going to deceive many. But we don't have to fear because we're owned and we're known. And Jesus Himself is going to destroy him with a word. And here we see John coming to this same idea. It's the last hour. In other words, it's the new covenant era. It's the reality of the new covenant come in. Oh, and there's going to be an antichrist who comes. In fact, he says in verse 18, many antichrists have come. Now, it seems to be that what John is teaching is that there will be many antichrists that are like this final antichrist. Jesus in Mark 13, 22 says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And John says, oh yeah, there's an Antichrist coming, but all the while there's going to be many of them. 
And what is it they're characterized by? We'll turn over to chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And just for fun, because we never go there, let's go to 2 John. Have you ever heard a sermon from 2 John? I don't know that I have. He says, 2 John, verse 7, there's only one chapter there. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver in the Antichrist. So, this rise of Antichrists is a reality in the last hour. It shouldn't cause us to be dismayed or disheartened. In fact, it should be an encouragement that, oh yeah, Jesus is coming that, that His return is going to happen. Back to, to 1 John, verse 19, they went out from us. Who is that? The Antichrists. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Just like Judas. It became evident he was not really a follower of Jesus. He was one of the twelve. He had the name disciple. He was in charge of the money. He must have been really good with it. Until he wasn't. And just like Judas, John's not saying here, by the way, that every doctrinal deviation is a denial of your salvation. He wrote the book that you'd have assurance. He's not saying that, you know, true Christians can't stray doctrinally at times. We've seen it in church history. In fact, one of the most humbling things about teaching church history at the seminary is that how much error can someone imbibe and still be used by God? Well, evidently a lot more than I think because I've seen the people God uses in church history and I wouldn't want them to be a member here at Trinity. John is also not speaking about those people who leave one Christian church for another. Although I've heard John's words misapplied that way in some sort of controlling manner that, oh, well, they went out from us. They must not really be of us. He's talking about the Antichrists in the context. They rose up within the church, but after a while, they didn't want to be a part of it. These people who deliberately abandoned the confession of Christianity that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. And John's writing this not to scare you into obedience. He's writing this to strengthen your faith. How do I know that? Well, let's look at the next couple verses. Verse 20, but, but you, you've been anointed with the Holy One and you have all knowledge. You all have knowledge rather. So, so what's he saying? He's saying, yeah, there were these false teachers, these antichrists that were a part of us initially, but they went out because they denied that Jesus is the Messiah. But you all, I have confidence because You've been anointed by the Holy One. You have the Spirit, and so you have all knowledge. You all have the knowledge, rather. Every single one of you. It's the new covenant. We all have the Spirit of God. You remember Moses in the wilderness? He had this overwhelming task to lead these stiff-necked, rebellious, hard-hearted people. And then Moses 
you know, he was filled with the Spirit. He was doing this work. But then this rumor comes that there were other people filled with the Spirit who were doing work. And people came to Moses and said, hey, you should, you should nip that in the bud. You're the leader. That's going to undermine your authority. And Moses says, no, I wish all of God's people had the Spirit. Why? Because then they wouldn't be stiff-necked and rebellious. Then they wouldn't be prone to throw jewelry in a fire and out pops a golden calf and it's a miracle. It's a Christmas miracle, I guess. I don't know. And we'll worship that golden calf. They wouldn't be prone to idolatry. Why? Because the Spirit of God who anoints is the one who gives us truth. And the blessing of the new covenant, he says, I will take out your heart of stone, Ezekiel 36, and I'll put in a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, I'll write my law on your hearts and on your minds so that you won't have to teach your neighbor saying, know the Lord, for all of you will know the Lord from the least of you to the greatest of you. It sure sounds like what John is saying here. You all have knowledge because you've been anointed. Deuteronomy 30, God says, I will circumcise your hearts so that you'll love me. What they couldn't do in the wilderness, God promises to do through a Messiah. And John is saying, we're in the last hour. The Messiah's come. His name is Jesus. He accomplished this at the cross. He's been ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father and the Spirit's been poured out so that you have this reality. So you want to know that you have eternal life? If you're part of the new covenant reality of being in Jesus, you have it. So look to Jesus. John assures his readers by two things. You already know the truth because, second, you've been anointed by the Holy One. You've been anointed, and, and the allusion is to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say the Spirit's name, but if we turn over to John 14, we see this is what he was talking about. John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Being orphaned, is the greatest picture of what it means to have no assurance. Jesus starts this whole conversation about, don't worry, I'm preparing a place for you. That where I am, you would be also. And then he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, this helper who's, going, who's already with you, who's going to be in you. The Spirit of truth. Who's going to guide you into all the truth. Who's going to remind you of all of these things. And John the Apostle, as he's writing his letter, he's got to be thinking about that experience. And he's saying, little children, you didn't walk with Jesus. I did. I saw Him. I touched Him. Chapter 1. I beheld Him. These things concerning the Word of life. Now, the ones who believed who haven't seen are blessed, aren't they? Us. And he says, you might be tempted to think that you're orphaned. That you're abandoned. That you're forsaken. That you might have out the grace of God. That, that we've, you've seen these people who were antichrists who wandered out of your, your local congregation and denied Jesus. And you're thinking, am I next? 
Is that me? And John says, no, I want to write to you to remind you of what you have in Jesus. To remind you of this anointing from the Holy Spirit, this new covenant reality. You know all things, he says in verse 20. This is not a promise of omniscience, right? We don't know everything. I mean, some of you might think you know everything. I'm talking to you 18-year-olds, teenagers. You think you know everything. I didn't even get a laugh at that. It's not funny. She's like, I'm not 18, so hey. I don't, well, my 17-year-old my walked out of the room. He knew I was going to say that probably. <laughs> this is describing what we have, the law written on the heart in the new covenant. We know. We know the gospel. We know the truth. This, this reality of who Jesus is and what he's done is person and work, and we know what we need to know to resist false teachers back in 1 John chapter 2 verse 21 he says i write to you not because you do not know the truth but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth one of my first career jobs <laughs> service merchandise in vallejo where the target is now i was working there and i got to work at the cash register and i had to go through all this training about counterfeit bills and it was touching and handling the real stuff so that I would know what the fake stuff was not to see all the different fake kinds but to know the real thing right well that never helped me at service merchandise because I nobody ever tried to pass me fake money then in my second career job when I was delivering pizzas here in Benicia at Pizza Hut I finally got my first counterfeit bill I was over here at the apartments on 5th Street. Someone gave me a fake 20, and I knew it right away by the touch. It was in the dark, but I knew it was not a real bill because it felt fake, like a photocopy. Of course, I come back, I tell the truth, and, and uh, you know, what ended up happening was I missed out on my tips for the rest of the night because I had to, you know, talk to the cops and got paid minimum wage, and I thought, man, that wasn't very, very cool. Like, I lost all this extra money just because of this fake bill. But the genuine, the fake, the fake bill, I knew because I had handled the real thing often enough. With these false teachers, these false Christs, we don't have to be overly concerned to know what all the false teaching in the world is out there because if you know the genuine enough, you'll spot the fake. And what's really encouraging is that it's not only head knowledge or or. Or like I just keep reciting the truths of the word enough. No, John says, you have the word written on your law. You have the anointing by the Holy One. You already know the truth because the Spirit of God who's in you. And He's greater than the one who's in the world, He's going to say later, right? So you don't have to fear. Verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And no one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's really rather striking what, what John's saying here. He's being crystal clear that what you believe about Jesus is the difference between heaven and hell. What we believe about Jesus is the difference between heaven and hell. Why? Why? Because if Jesus is not the incarnate Son of God, He can't bear our sins. He can't forgive us. He can't bring us into fellowship with the living God. 
And this is exactly what John's getting at is abiding in the Father and Son and having fellowship. This, this joy and this, this communion with God as a result of what He's done in Jesus. Let's just walk through what John's getting at here. Back to chapter 1, verse 3. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Down to verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 24. But whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Over to chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us His Spirit. And so he says this is, the, this is the reality of what it means to abide in God and God to abide in us is the new covenant reality that He's given us the Holy Spirit. And then he finishes off, turn to chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, presumably by the indwelling Spirit, so that we may know Him who's true and we are in Him who's true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so this abiding by the Spirit leads to this reality of eternal life. In fact, it, it, it not only leads to it, it's, it flows from it, doesn't it? Because the Father who has life in Himself has given the Son to have life in Himself. And John 6.63 says it's the Spirit who gives life. So all of the triune God has been pouring their eternal life into us by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that when we lack assurance or we fear that we aren't actually going to make it into the presence of God because of indwelling sin, because of the decisions we've made, because of the weight of this fallen world, John says, I want you to know that you have eternal life right now. And you have this understanding because of this reality that you're going to make it. And you're going to be with Him forever because He's the one who initiated it. He's the one who brought you into this life. He's brought you in for a purpose, which is to share in this life, to dwell in this life. And we haven't even run over to the Gospel of John, but he says in chapter 17, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And God has created us for this purpose to enjoy fellowship and communion with Him forever. And we're going to do it as a kingdom of priests. If we go to the last book that John wrote in Revelation 21 and 22, it says we're going to be in His presence forever. And our names are, His name is going to be written on our foreheads. And He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And we're going to serve Him forever. And we're going to reign forever. We're going to see His face. The God who is spirit, who has no face, is called the beatific vision in church history. We're going to get a glimpse of the undiminished glory of God. And we're going to be fit for that presence. And we're not going to be consumed. And we're not going to be cast out. And we're not going to be orphaned. We're going to experience overwhelming joy because the psalmist says at His right hand are pleasures forevermore and abounding joy. 
This is what we were created for. And John is so excited about this. He says, I want you to know that you have this and you could never lose this because of what's true in Jesus. And you don't get this by working. John had already said this. He said this is achieved by faith, but he's going to talk about it in chapter 5 again. But that's when we get to chapter 5. Let's go back to chapter 2. This anointing, the last four verses, this anointing from Christ means that Christians are adequately equipped to abide in the Father and the Son by means of the Gospel. This is massive. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. The temptation in Christianity is to always turn it into a two-tier system. The regular Christians and the super-Christians. Your average Joe Christian and those who are really close to Jesus. And then develop some means of determining who's in what category. So some have gotten the Holy Ghost in a special way. And they're the super-Christians. Or some have experienced this crisis to where they finally let go and let God and they got this. But that's not what the New Covenant says. The New Covenant says if you have the Spirit of God, you belong to Him. From the least of you to the greatest of you. So you don't have to fear. And John's saying here in verse 24, hey, you know what you heard in the beginning? What was it? Jesus died for your sins. And if you simply believe upon Him, you'll have eternal life and never perish. Well, let that which was from the beginning abide in you. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you're going to abide in the Son and in the Father. It's not Jesus plus some spiritual push-ups of whatever kind. This is the promise He made. Eternal life, He says. We're to abide in the Gospel. Cling to the Gospel. Preach it to our hearts daily and know it so well that the lies of Antichrist find no foothold in our minds or hearts. We had just been through the book of Galatians and we saw that same thing that Paul says if, if, if someone comes preaching another Gospel, let him be anathema. It's like slavery to add works to faith. John's not saying exactly the same thing here, but he's saying, hey, if you let what is from the beginning abide in you, you're set. You're good. You're abiding in the Son and in the Father and you have eternal life. Reminds me of what Paul says in Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Singing to one another, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? The Word of Christ. The Word concerning Jesus Christ. What is that? The Gospel? It's what we sang in those songs. And when we let it abide in us richly, dwell in us richly, as we sing, we encourage, admonish one another. That's the command there. It's funny that it, it's... Well, the command is letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, but then the means by doing it is admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, how in the world do we do that? Forgive me if I've used this example before, but 
when you come to church on a given Sunday and it's all you can do to get here, you don't really want to be here. And you're having a hard time believing that the gospel's true. You're, you're tempted to doubt that Jesus really died or that he really existed or that your sins are really forgiven or that you're really part of the family of God or that you really won't be orphaned or that you lack assurance. And you come and you start singing those songs and the content of the songs is the gospel concerning Jesus. It's Christ our hope in life and death. And you're singing them, but you're having a hard time believing them. But what you do is you start looking around the room and you see that someone else is singing them. That someone else is singing those same songs about Jesus. And you know what they're going through. And you know that they've been through deep waters and you know that that their faith has not always been certain. It's been shaken because of the cares of life and the trials of this world, but they're still believing the Gospel. And so maybe I can still believe the Gospel. Maybe me coming at broken at the end of myself and not even knowing for certain if I'm believing the words I'm singing that I would see that my brothers and sisters who I know are still singing the same gospel, these words concerning Jesus, and I can still believe the gospel. That's what it means to admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is true. Christ is our hope in life and death. This is true. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Is it possible that there would be any way that Jesus' blood would be put on my account? Well, I sure don't feel like it should be that way. He's the righteous one. And I'm a sinner through and through. And yet that's what the Gospel says. That's why I can believe it. Letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then He calls it a promise. Verse 25. This is the promise He made to us. Eternal life. With this declaration, John connects the experience of eternal life with our relationship with God the Father. Again, our best defense against these false teachers is not to study false teachings, but to know the Gospel. To know the truth. And we're equipped, he says in verse 27, adequately equipped against these false teachers. Again, because of the anointing, he says, verse 26, I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you. You see, false teaching, as we talked about in the, in, in the first chapter, it destroys assurance. False teachers destroy assurance, and John is writing that you would know you have eternal life. And anybody who denies that Jesus is the Messiah has got to come up with another solution to your sin. They've got to come up with another plan for how you're going to be holy, how you're going to be sanctified. They've got to come up with another plan of how you can experience joy and satisfaction and fullness in life and peace. Because if it's not Jesus, it's got to be something else. And all of those something else's He said, that's the world system that's passing away in chapter 2. And don't love it or the things in it because it can never deliver. We're adequately equipped. He says in verse 27, you have no need that anyone should teach you. 
Now, John here is not saying that we don't need pastors, we don't need disciplers. We know that's the case. What he's talking about is the gospel and the new covenant. You don't need anyone to teach you what it means to have eternal life and to be part of the family of God, to be abiding in the Father and Son because you have the Holy Spirit if you've believed on Jesus. You don't need anyone to teach you. There's no secret seminar for how to really get the Spirit. There's no 10 tricks, 10 tips to close communion with the Father. If you have the new covenant, you have everything you need You've been brought near. This is what Paul, the argument he makes in Ephesians 2, that we, by union with the Son, in Him, through the Spirit, have access to the Father. It's what the author of the book of Hebrews says, that you can come to the throne of grace and find grace and mercy to help in your time of need. Why? Because Jesus went ahead of us and He tore open the way, as it were, and tore it wide open so that now our access to the Father is one of confidence, boldness, access. We don't come in the fear and trembling of a subject to a king who could cut our heads off at any moment. We come to the one who has adopted us and brought us into his family and given us his name, who loves us with an everlasting love that's high and wide and deep and long, and he demonstrates it. We're going to see this in 1 John 4. How does he demonstrate it? Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave us His Son. You want to see the demonstration of how much the Father loves you? Look to the cross. He gave you His Son. You see, these misconceptions about the Father, that He's just like waiting with His finger on the button, just looking for an excuse to just push it and nuke us off the planet, that's not a picture of the Father. Or this idea that he's the holy and righteous stern lawgiver and it took the son to, you know, talk him off the ledge and settle him down. The New Testament God of love. That's a bunch of liberal theological nonsense. God the Father's the one who initiated our salvation. He's the one that so loved the world he gave his son. He's the one who has decided that he would come up with this plan that would save us from our sins not by our works but by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone as a gift he's the giver of every good and perfect gift that comes down from heaven so there's no need that anyone should teach us rather john is reminding us of what we already know what's self-evident the new covenant everything that we have And so he says, just as it is taught you, abide in him. And he finally gets to the command at the end of all of this convoluted grammar. Have fun with it, Jason. Greek class is what I'm thinking about there. All this convoluted grammar, he gets to the command to abide in him after he had talked about all of the realities and everything that we have. And we would say at the end of all of this, of course, this one who's loved us, who's given us his son, who's anointed us by the spirit so that we know all the truth, so that we're not going to be lost, so that we're not going to be like these false teachers who go out from us. 
Of course I want to abide in Him. Of course I want to be near Him. Of course I want to be in Jesus and, and clinging to the cross. I want Him to encompass all of the air that surrounds me on all sides as it were. Like a fish. Doesn't matter whether it's the smallest little sea monkey fish in the sea or the largest whale. They live in the ocean. Just like they abide in the sea, we want to abide in Christ. And just like a fish doesn't seek to be in the sky or on the shore because it's out of its element of the water, we don't want to live in the world and its sins. We don't want to, we don't want to go somewhere else to find our joy and satisfaction. We want to abide in the Father and in the Son who's given us His Spirit. He's our life. This word abide, John's going to pick it up again in chapter 4. And I'll just turn there in closing. Verse 12. He says, 1 John 4, 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Uh, this is a pretty staggering claim that John is making here. Not the first part. First part, no one has ever seen God. Every person knows this is true we haven't seen god the father god is spirit but what he says in the second part of this sentence is staggering if we love one another if we have fellowship with one another and love one another god abides in us and his love is perfected in us which means people see god in us that's staggering it's almost too much to believe i'll be honest the one who dwells in unapproachable light who no man has seen nor can see. Who we sang about. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. This is the one that if we love one another as a body of Christ, if we have fellowship with one another, communion with one another, the Father's love is perfected in us in such a way God is abiding in us that the implication is that people see God in us. He goes on to say, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us His Spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. What a comfort. What a hope. I mean, assurance. When he's going to say, I write these things so that you know you would have eternal life, this is an incredible hope that we have in Jesus. That we abide in the Father and the Son by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this new covenant ministry of the Spirit dwelling in us. To use the theological term, we've been regenerated. We've been born again to use the more colloquial term, right? John 3, we've been born from above, as Jesus told Nicodemus. And of course, Nicodemus says, how in the world? Like, how can you be born again? You can't go back into your mother's womb. He says, well, that which is born of water is, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And the spirit blows where he will. 
And he's hinting, Jesus is hinting at what Nicodemus should have known. That God was promising from the beginning to bring about regeneration in His people so that they would finally do what they could never do apart from it. Which is obey Him and love Him and abide in Him. And know the truth. And persevere until eternal life. That's why Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Jesus was saying, read your Bible, Nicodemus. This is what we have. I find it interesting during the Great Awakening that when you look at the content of the preaching that was done during the Great Awakening, two major doctrines were preached over and over and over. The first was justification by faith alone, and the second was regeneration, the new birth. And you look at the content of that preaching, and what it was was these preachers were telling people, there is a way for you to be declared righteous in God's sight, not by your works, but by faith alone. What you could never do on your own, God has done in His Son, and you receive it by faith, this gospel. And when you receive it, you won't be the same. You'll be changed. The Spirit of God will dwell in you. He'll write His law on your heart. You'll be born again and you'll never be the same. There will be a B.C. and an A.D. in your life. A before Christ and an Anno Domini, right? That's what Latin, year of our Lord. Learn something new if you didn't know that today. This is what John pegs as the basis of our assurance, this new covenant reality. And so this is what I hope encourages you today if you've come in and you're weary and worn out, that you would remember everything you have in Jesus. That you've been given the Spirit. And, and Paul, of course, he uses that picture of the Spirit's the down payment, the pledge. Now, if God is the down payment, what is the full payment? God. So if you've already been given God the Holy Spirit as the down payment, then there's a guarantee that the full payment's going to be the presence of our triune God forever. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would encourage them with wherever they're at. That if they have believed upon Jesus, they are abiding in you and in your Son through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and they don't have to fear that they're going to be orphaned or cast out. What a word. What an incredible hope that we don't even have to fear the false teachers of this world. We're not going to be deceived because you've written your law on our hearts and we know the truth. Use us as a church to encourage those who are weary, who are broken. I think of my friends at the Jiu-Jitsu Academy who have shared with me some of their stories and how they've made a mess of their life with their decisions. Would you use the gospel to do a mighty work in them? I think of co-workers. I think of this community so many need Jesus. So many need the Gospel. And so, Father, would You use us and not pass us by? Would You, 
would you see and your would you give us eyes to see your providences and those good works that you've planned in advance that we would walk in them that those divine appointments with people you'd give us the words to speak we would see the opportunity we would tell of the hope that's in us we would love them that we would not only meet their physical needs but we would share the gospel, that they would see the love we have for one another and they would see you in us as they are with us and provoke them to a godly jealousy to want this gospel, to desire this life. Do this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.